0: how many of you all had a parent who came home at night and their dissatisfaction with where they work came into yeah. dinner time and family life i think 90% of the students raised their hand that infects everything yeah right and it, and if you show and i can't believe you lived that command and control and you're so right Ryan people would say back then work is work it's it's not called play. Your reward is your paycheck. Stop complaining. I mean, what a different mentality, right?
1: Welcome to the Always Better Than Yesterday podcast. I am your host, Ryan Hartley. This podcast is for heart-centered leaders just like you. I hope our time spent together helps you leave a heartprint where those around you are left better than yesterday. These interview sessions are sponsored by our great friends at Elevate Online Marketing. On episode 184, I'm joined by Dr. Michelle Johnston. Michelle is a management professor, executive coach and leadership expert, helping leaders achieve results through meaningful connection. She's an award-winning professor studying leadership and business communication and her research has shown a clear link between a team's effective communication and its positive financial performance. Earlier this year, Michelle released her first book, The Seismic Shift in Leadership. We have a great conversation about what it means to create connection, connection with ourselves, connection with our team, and connection with our organizations. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Here is episode 184 with Michelle Johnston. Michelle, welcome to the Always Best Than Yesterday podcast. How are you?
0: I'm great, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me.
1: I love it. And um, one of the values that I have here at Always Better Than Yesterday is connection. It is like such a, a key component to this heart-centered leadership that we talk about. And I love that you've written a book that is all about connection. But before we get into the book, I'd love to know a bit about you and a little bit about your your story to being someone who's even written a book about leadership and connection.
0: Yeah, I felt like I found my passion when I was about 23 years old. I was in the master's program in graduate school at Auburn, and one of my professors um, led this course that drove all of us crazy because it was all experiential, and he didn't tell us anything. It was all about us doing and learning and exploring, and my and that particular professor, Larry Barker, he... Um, recruited me for a consulting firm here in New Orleans. And so that's how it all began. I loved adult education. Mm -hmm. I loved trying to be better with uh, human dynamics and communication. And, And so it ended up, I stumbled kind of in the back door to becoming a professor because I was working for this management consulting firm and i was so young that they said i needed to get a phd and i went kicking and screaming i was like why would you want to do that <laughs> why would i need a phd but they both had them and they thought it really helped especially with credibility and so i ran up the road to lsu i got a phd now all of a sudden i'm consult you know i'm not consulting at the time i'm leading workshops right yeah. Uh, in my 20s. And I was teaching one class at night at Loyola, I was teaching business communication. And the dean said, you know, I'd like to make this a mandatory course in the business school, you'd be the only person teaching these soft skills, Mm -hmm. and give you a full time job. And so that's how my career as an academic um, began. And I I don't think that this book, the seismic shift that you're referring to that really focuses on connection ever would have happened without the amalgamation, without all of those things coming together—the management consulting, the training, adult learning, corporate, and academia—coming together for them.
1: Mm, I love that it's such a purpose-driven book, and I think that a lot of purpose is informed by, you know, some of the pain that we've got to go through, and some of the passion that we discover for these topics on the way. Where, where on that kind of sliding spectrum of pain and passion would you kind of? state your experiences are driven from?
0: Oh my gosh, that is such a great question. Pain and passion. I think that the reason why I felt compelled to write the book was because of the pain. And, And it was only brought to my attention really When I was coaching so years later right um, now I lift my head up after publishing get tenure and I thought I wanted to be an executive coach so now I'm Mm. out there coaching and I'm 53 years old so I was surrounded by the baby boomers who Mm. absolutely led through command and control. And and the professors, my colleagues, and, and and don't get me wrong, I didn't think there was anything wrong with it back then. I thought these these people were rock stars. They knew everything. They were authoritative. I'm like, absolutely, wherever Hollywood you're going leadership. To. Right, exactly. And so I didn't think there was anything wrong with it, because that's what I was used to. So all of a sudden, I'm seeing, though, in the workplace, the leaders who were the younger leaders who were subscribing to that authoritarian, do it my way, and not creating cultures of connection at all. They inadvertently we're creating these cultures of fear. Mm. And so I'm trying to coach them and they're getting pushed out of organization. So that was my big Eureka, okay, there's a shift going on. This is no longer okay. And the pain was that I realized I had been that person trying to be that authoritarian leader mm. in the MBA classroom because that's what I looked around and that's what I was surrounded with and it was successful. Mm. But I wasn't, I hadn't been getting good teaching evaluations. And the dean brought me in. He said, I know you're capable of it. I don't understand what is the miss here. And there was so much pain in that because I finally had to realize I wasn't being myself. Hmm. I was just trying to be what I thought would be successful. And it wasn't me. And it was creating this disconnection right and cognitive dissonance trying to walk in every day and be somebody that you're not yeah and so that pain released and i finally gave myself permission okay i have very different um personality traits than a lot of what i'm seeing and i'm just gonna have to go for it and ryan you will love this so last night i did something that i i don't recommend anyone doing is there's um an app for students called rate my professor and and I went into it and I thought you know what because so so much of these podcasts are about right owning your story and figuring out who you are (laughs) and I saw me through their lens and and so many of the students were like oh, you got to take Dr. Johnston. You just have to get used to the fact that she's really peppy.
1: <laughs> yeah. Did they give you feed forward?
0: <laughs> no, they didn't. It was, it was like, okay, but if you can handle that peppiness, you'll be okay. And I think that I was so self-conscious for so long about wow. that high energy that I just pretended I didn't have it. So out of the pain of trying to reconcile and come to terms like this is being, it might not work, or maybe I'm, I'm just going to bring my full self to the classroom. And so be it if they find it annoying, but I'm going to do the best job and they're going to walk away having learned something.
1: I love that. And, um, you know, the, the book is focused around this Um, the topic of connection and and I love the way that you segment it around connecting first with self I think you know the start of being able to lead others is being able to lead ourselves and so I'm I'm really I love the way that you start with self and then we connect with our team and then we connect with the organization and I, I what I found really interesting is at the very start of your book like your your acknowledgement your thank you is to the city of New Orleans and it's 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 a big thank you because you say that this is the place where you don't have to be perfect.
0: As a matter of fact, I love that you've read it and you're so well birthed. Thank you, Ryan. Um, Yeah. Who knew that this very imperfect city with this huge soul Right, there is music on every corner. I mean, it is just bursting um, with kind of a joie de vivre, a very different feel than a lot of American cities. And I fell hard for it. I fell hard for it, I think, because I had moved around every two years growing up in a corporate family. Mm -hmm. And so I was so used to going from suburb to suburb, the suburbs outside of Detroit, the suburbs outside of New York City, the suburbs outside of Washington, DC, going to all these big city in the suburbs, which were very cookie cutter to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think because of having to move around so much, I just wanted to fit in and I was just looking around how to adapt And when I finally got to New Orleans, I realized it was so uncool to look like anybody else, to be a cookie cutter. Like it was much cooler to totally be yourself. And this city embraces you if you love New Orleans and if you're authentically you. And who knew that a city would become a backdrop for research into the importance of embracing imperfection?
1: you've got people listening on tenterhooks right now because there are people in organizations where they are holding themselves back. They're not bringing up the full selves and they're going, right, Michelle, I'm listening. Where do I start?
0: Yeah. So once I, I, I followed Brene Brown. Um, mm-hmm. I really like her research. <clears throat> and I remember reading her book, the gifts of imperfection yeah. and it just being a powerful moment And that's when I, that pain that you're talking about, like, okay, I've been trying to be somebody else for years. It's not really working and it's not working for the people that I'm coaching. So I've got, if I'm going to be the best coach, And really help people find their voices and own their stories. I've got to do it too. So I I was having all of my clients and students own their stories and I realized I had to do that as well. So yeah, the first step is really owning your story and trying to figure out um, your past, your significant life events that really shaped who you are today and getting to a point where you can embrace them and not hide them. Mm. That's what I was seeing was creating disconnection is there was one client that one leader that I was coaching and he had been, I really, our stories resonated. He had been a military brat, right? So he had moved Mm. all over the place and then was brought, transferred into New Orleans in this high level leadership position. And in New Orleans, people really are not transient here. Mm -hmm. Their aunts and uncles still live down the street and they have crawfish boils together and they have brass bands on their front porches and it's very communal. But this guy wasn't used to it. He was allergic to seafood, didn't drink beer, was training for triathlons all the time. And so kind of put up this wall like, oh, I am not like you. And once, because he was so self-conscious, right? If you're hiding pieces of yourself, then you end up putting up a wall and there's not really an opportunity for connection. So you really have to own your story first and making sure that you're comfortable. And so then I had to look in the mirror and say, gosh, I think for years I've had a wall up because I've just been on the surface trying to find commonality with people, but not really going deep. Because I was so self-conscious that I didn't have a home. People would say, oh, where are you from? And I would say, oh, where are you from? And they would name a city and likely I had been, you know, I had lived there. I'm like, oh, yeah, I lived in Detroit, Michigan. And that was just to create commonality, but there wasn't any depth to it, right? So you really have to work. And once you own your story, which when when I say own your story, it's really owning those significant life events that can be painful, that Mm. you can be self-conscious of. But once you own it, I'll give you a great story, Ryan. One of my students, we do this exercise in my MBA class, and he stood up. It was a stadium-style classroom, and he stood up on stage, and he said, the story I'm going to share with you tonight is one that I have never shared with anybody but my close friends and family. That's good he said, I'm from a very poor village in Honduras. He said, I got to Loyola on scholarship and I'm eternally grateful. Mm -hmm. He said, being from a poor village in Honduras is not uncommon. He said, but what was Kind of uncommon is that my grandparents lived with us. And he said, but again, really not that uncommon. We were very poor. But then when my grandfather died, my grandma moved into my bedroom. I was in high school and I was sharing a bedroom with my grandmother. Mm -hmm. Only my closest friends knew I was so ashamed. He said, and I definitely wasn't going to share that with anybody. When I came to the United States to study in a graduate program, he said, but my grandmother just died. And he said, I wouldn't ever replace those years that I had with her. And I realized that's what made me, me, and I'm going to sing it from the rooftops.
1: Wow. Freedom. I
0: I still get chills mm. just retelling that story because I just remember sitting in the audience and looking around, and you saw this. It, two things happened when you own this when you own yeah. your story. Two things happened. He felt empowered and liberated because he had been hiding this piece of himself, mm. and as he's sharing it, like this is me, and I'm proud now of mm. that. Then the audience, the people in the room, are like, I like you. I yeah. trust you, you're yeah. a good guy. So you can see that internal connection within, within himself and then the connection all of a sudden you feel with others.
1: Oh, that's powerful. Thank you for sharing that story. As you were referencing Brene Brown earlier, it reminded me of the quote that she says that you can't have true belonging if you have to change yourself to fit in or something to that effect. And And I think something can happen that's even worse than that, which is that we can become highly successful by changing who we are, which almost like, is worse because it reinforces that who we are normally probably wouldn't have achieved these things and then we become stuck in this version of ourselves that doesn't feel truly aligned and then we get to that point of going oh i am so out of alignment and i am stuck
0: That's so wild you just said that because I just um, interviewed Juan Martin for my podcast called Mm -hmm. The Seismic Shift and Juan Martin is the global president of Kind Bars. He's in my book, fascinating individual. He's from the south of Spain, raised in a very macho culture. Mm -hmm. And for years, that worked. He had been hired after graduate school from Mars, a privately held company, you know, M&Ms and candy and pet food. And he had been in charge of Africa and Europe, again, very well. And then finally got an executive coach and looked in the mirror and said, I don't want, this is really not who I am. This is what I thought I was supposed to be. I'm tired of trying to play the macho guy. Mm -hmm. And so he gave himself permission to lead with compassion and kindness. And he said, he's still super competitive, obviously, but he wanted to lead with more of those qualities. And, And at that point, the universe conspired Um, Not against him, but for him, because Mars acquired Daniel Lubetzky's company, Kind Bars. So Daniel Lubetzky was the founder of Kind, and now Mars bought it and was looking for a leader who could absolutely represent kindness, because that's one of the metrics that they evaluate on, is not just how many bars that Juan Martin sells, Mm in his company, it's how many acts of kindness. So if he had not finally said, I am tired yeah, yeah. of pretending to be this macho macho, I'm gonna lead with compassion, he never would have been plucked to be the global <laughs> president of kind.
1: Hey, my friends, thank you for being with us so far. I hope you're enjoying the interview. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about our signature heart print coaching. Our heart print coaching is for you. If you're ready to go all in on becoming a heart-centered leader, Ready to go all in on doing more of what you love. Ready to see what you are capable of with support, guidance and accountability. You're ready to go on a rapid transformational journey that will change your life and others in as little as three months. Are you ready to show up with courage and share your gift with the world? Ready to start making an income and more impact by doing what you love ready to start leaving your legacy where those around you are left better than yesterday. In our Heartprint signature coaching, in our time together, I'll help you lead from your heart set. I'll help you develop other people and your team. I'll help you bring your heart work to the world. I'll help you start leaving a legacy and capturing examples of your impact. I will help you be someone you love, to do more of what you love and to serve people that you love It's an amazing opportunity for someone who's ready to go all in and be a heart-centered leader. I'll throw in loads of other bonuses, including your life languages profile, uh, access to our Master Heart and Mind membership, and even some Always Better Than Yesterday merchandise. Head to abty.co.uk forward slash coaching to find out more, and I look forward to connecting with you very soon. That's abty.co.uk forward slash coaching. Here we go. Back to the interview. Oh, I love that. And, you know, your your tagline for this book, Seismic Shift in Leadership, is about meaningful connection and enhancing organisational performance. And, you know, we probably wouldn't have put those two sentences together, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. How has connection got anything to do with bottom line and enhancing organisational performance? But what happens when, you can kind of connect with your team. Like, what are some of the uh, the transformative effects of, of leading in that way?
0: Yeah, I was so self conscious as a young professor in a business school, kind of the only one in charge of teaching me soft skills that i that I put my head down and tried to show the link when I was publishing and writing articles and doing research, trying to show the link between soft skills and hard financial performance. And so my colleague, Dr. Kendra Reed and I, we created the scale called the team listening environment. We were absolutely certain that if a leader created a positive environment Mm -hmm. with his or her team, where he or she truly listened to them and also shared information and asked for feedback, what do you think we could do? Our quality is down, our customers are down, what can we do? And then loop back and say, we tried your ideas. And so it, it, so we called it the team listening environment. And so we predicted and we went and collected data at various manufacturing facilities that if if you had a leader, so we asked the employees, if you had a leader who created this positive team listening environment, you would absolutely make more money and we proved it. Woohoo! The sales were higher. They generated more sales in those divisions that had that leader. So we knew we were onto something, right? That performance is related and driven by environment. So then when I was exploring, so once I had that Eureka that the command and control authoritarian styles getting pushed out and then I realized It is all about connection right now. And then I went and interviewed the 18 leaders to try to figure that out. Well, what does that look like? What can you do differently to have that connection? And and what we are finding is that the leaders who are focusing on creating psychological safety and trust just by saying, how are you doing really? By showing their people, I'll give you an example. Um, I was in Rome teaching this summer, my students, and one of my favorite leaders asks me to be a part of his monthly team meeting. And he'll say, well why don't you do the connection exercise or the you know the question in the beginning, Michelle. So this meeting at Rome time was at nine o'clock on a Friday night. So you would think that I would say, I'm in Rome teaching, Thanks, I'm fine, but I don't want to miss these meetings because they're incredible. He's the CFO of a large organization. So I show up at nine o'clock on Zoom in Rome and, and Pete, my client, said, well, so what question do you have for everybody to connect today, Michelle? And I said, well, you know, I, it's 95 degrees here in Rome. And we were taking a very long, hot, little, kind of little stinky bus ride today And it kind of gave me this new perspective of how spoiled I am, right, because I don't really do those things in New Orleans, we don't have big mass transportation and, and it just made me realize, gosh, I take a lot for granted after that three hour very hot stinky bus ride. And I said so let's just go around and hear about how people have been uncomfortable recently and how that changed their perspective. Ryan, we got the most powerful stories Mm -hmm. of health scares, of um, the Roe versus Wade had been overturned, and there was a a leader on the call who said, I have to learn how to be more empathetic. It made me so, what do I do? How do I help my people? And it was just this one question, and we spent 15 minutes on Zoom going around hearing from everybody, and then all of a sudden, you have this safety and trust and comfort, then you then you can accomplish your goals. Then you have that high performing team that really, really is, is cohesive. And that's what Pete believes in. He's like, I'm going to begin every one of my meetings, my team meetings with that, because that connection is vital to be innovative. He said, right now, we've got to figure out how to increase revenue by 30%. How in the world are we going to do that without us truly being this cohesive team? And you, you, you begin by showing the person that you care about them, not just professionally, but personally.
1: That's really powerful. The um, there's an organization called the HeartMath Institute, and and they talk a lot about um the power of you know connecting beyond the intellect when we connect with those around us at a heart level, kind of electromagnetic kind of frequencies. It's a bit hard to get your head around. But they the research said that the, the All Blacks, when they do the hacker, they've got an almost um, an unfair advantage because they're doing some form of ritual that connects them together beyond the intellect. So there's no language involved. There's no words. It is a you know you know when the birds flock together and they're in a v shape it's almost there's something happening where there is a connection between people that goes beyond the intellect and and i've i've really come to believe that we have a heart and we have a mind and and i think so often everything that you're talking about it's not it, as much as it can be a strategy it can't start as a strategy It has to start with a leader, with a heart for connection to begin with. And then the wonderful thing that I think happens then is they're not too worried about getting the words right. The focus isn't specifically on, oh, do I get this wrong? There's a grace around the topic that says, I might not kind of get this right, but you feel my intention is that we unite around something in some way. When I say the words kind of heart and mind and How does does that kind of resonate with you?
0: Oh, my gosh, that is beautiful. As a matter of fact, I'm in an organization called 100 Coaches, and Marshall Goldsmith uh, Mm. formed this group, and he's uh, an executive coach. So we are on Monday calls all around the world talking about issues of of the heart, how we can best help our leaders. Mm. And one of my colleagues, Hubert Jolie, just wrote a book called The Heart, of business. Mm. And he was the CEO of Best Buy. He took it on when everyone said that Best Buy was absolutely going to go bankrupt and there's no way he could save this company. And he said, I'm going to figure out how to save it. And he went into it as a former McKinsey guy, super analytical, uh, very serious. And then by getting on the floor and spending lots and lots of hours just trying to learn the business and learn the employees and truly listening, he realized if we have to turn this company around, it's got to be through the heart. Hmm of the employees mm-hmm. and through the customers. Uh, and so he re- then he wrote an entire book and he turned around Best Buy, now he's at Harvard teaching and his book is called The Heart of Business. And I absolutely believe with what you're talking about. And one of the other key words, Ryan, that you mentioned that I'm just now um, learning more about, um, or actually just putting the, the name to it, what I'm seeing is ritual. Yeah. So what this client of mine does is his ritual is, I don't care if we're losing a hundred million dollars right now. My team meeting is starting with a question because I care about you. Mm-hmm. And that ritual is something, you're right, that, that now everybody knows what to expect. And there might be somebody rolling their eyes, like, I really don't feel like doing this right now. I've got a lot of work to be done, but then you can see afterwards, just through their body language, that they're more relaxed. So yeah, I, I think we're trying to embed heart and connection into work and, and make it a ritual. I think we're, we're onto something for sure.
1: Yeah, and, you know, in, in your third section of your book, you talk about um, connecting with the organisation and, and, and a positive culture. And I think you know, some of those things can become hallmarks of cultures, can't they? Because I think human beings, we're primitive beings, that we, we kind of look around to each other to go, how do I behave here? Like, <laughs> what, does it, what does it take to, to be successful here? And, you know, those sorts of things that we do, they're almost like reinforcing our identity and, and, and as an expression of who we are and, and how we behave.
0: Yes, and I just saw you're gonna love this on 60 Minutes the other night. Um, They did interviews with Ted Lasso and oh. and and the actors on Ted Lasso. My and, oh, mine, too. And so they were asking Jason Sudeikis and everybody yeah. there. They said, so so what's going on here? You're really pushing positivity and kindness. And the actors said, yeah, we want to get rid of the toxic masculinity Mm. that typically is found in locker rooms and show that if we can do it, you know, even though it's fictitious, but if it can be done in a locker room for a soccer team, then you better believe that you can do that in a, you know, in a more traditional company. And so people are just yearning for, to be able to actually work for a place that demonstrates kindness and positivity. So this seismic shift that I was witnessing right before the pandemic And then held on to my book, called my publisher, and said, "I cannot publish a book on connection when the entire planet Earth is now (laughs) in (laughs) the lockdown and no one's connected." And they said, "How long do you could have won?" Yeah, yeah. (laughs) They said, "How long do you need?" I said, "I don't know." So I took the whole time of the pandemic. I went back to the leaders and had additional interviews and said. What in the world are you doing? How are mm-hmm. you connecting in a time of crisis and got really rich data? And now we come out and then publish the book. Now right. we're coming out of the pandemic and, and employees are telling us through the great resignation, enough. I want to work for a company, uh, an organization that I feel good about, that, yeah. that, that I feel like they're paying me what I should be paid, that I have the flexibility, that that I don't have a jerk boss. Mm-hmm. I don't want to work for an abusive culture anymore. So we're now, I think, to this tipping point where where employees have more power than they've ever had before, where they can finally say, yeah, I'm not doing that anymore. Yeah. And we, you know, we, the leaders, um, and I'm coaching these leaders of organizations yeah. are facing these labor shortages saying, whoa, I might need to change in order to recruit and retain the talent that I need.
1: Yeah. I don't know if you can see, but this quote over the side of my shoulder, it's, I believe in hope, I believe in belief, Ted Lasso. <laughs> I don't know yeah. if you can see that, does that. <laughs> um, but, but you know, one of your chapters is all about servant leadership. And I, and I think that, that, where was I going to go with this? I think, you know, a, a leader that postures their heart on their people um, sees that individual um, that there's because here's the thing back in the police right I, I i did 13 years in the uk police service and um yeah hierarchical command control i know exactly what you're talking about um and, and so often leaders that i would speak to would have an attitude like these people are lucky to have a job you know if they don't like our working conditions they, you know they've got job security if they don't like it they can go down to the nearest mcdonald's you know it's very old kind of almost like an arrogant attitude they, they they, so they didn't have to try hard to or they put their, their assumption is they don't have to try hard to but when we posture our heart on our people and we say actually do you know what i'm responsible for you whilst you're in my care you're here for 40 hours at least you then start to see that slightly differently and then you get to serve them whilst they're there and here's the real thing that changed me profoundly was understanding that I could do things with my team that meant they would go home better for those who needed them.
0: That is beautiful.
1: Yeah.
0: I, when I was just teaching in Rome, I asked my students, we were talking about positive cultures, and I asked my students, I said, how many of you all had a parent who came home at night and their dissatisfaction with where they work came into yeah. dinner time and family life mm-hmm. say that i had you know i think 90% of the students raised their hand yeah that infects everything yeah right and it, and if you show and i can't believe you lived that command and control and you're mm-hmm. so right Ryan people would say back then work is work it's it, it's not called play. Your reward is your paycheck. Stop complaining. I mean, what a different mentality, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking about the words of your book Seismic Shift and you know, for, for my listeners that do come from a, a, an emergency services background, there is absolutely benefit in a command and control situation, right? I completely get it, because we do not want to be sit around asking people what they think and feel about a situation when the house is on fire, right? <laughs> Time and a place. And that's what comes to my mind when you say seismic shift, is that, you know, we've got organizations like the police service that needs to transform, they've got, you know, far outdated processes, procedures, they're trying to they're trying to transform their organization with an out-of-date leadership toolkit. And I think you're obviously uh, well-on to that because you've written a book about the very thing.
0: You are absolutely right. We still need processes and procedures, mm. particularly for the, the first-line responders, right? The emergency responders. You need all of that. It's But it's how you lead. You stay with processes and procedures, but it's how you show up as a leader to show that you care about the people in those conversations between first responding, right? I mean, I a lot of my clients are CEOs of hospitals. And after COVID, this is a tough time, a really tough time for hospitals. They lost a lot of money. Reimbursements are, are hard. They were really behind on elective surgery. So, if you're not going to disrupt now, I tell them then when, you know, I'm, I'm taking them through lots of exercises of what does patient care look like and how can it look different. Because if you're gonna continue to lose money in whatever role you're in, whatever occupation you're in, if you're losing money and you don't see that changing, you have to blow up the way things are done and think differently. How can we do this differently with still? So the hospital scenario is you still have to deliver patient care, But can we do it different? I've got an example for you, Ryan. It was crazy. I was talking to one of my leaders yesterday and he said, "We, we put a couple of people, employees in the hospital. We put one of them on a stretcher for the day to experience what it was like going from floor to floor, looking up at the ceiling on the stretcher to mm-hmm. see things we never saw, we didn't realize 30% of our tiles were just disgusting and that's all they saw looking mm-hmm. up. You know, we put one of them in a in a wheelchair and, and, and have them really experience that. And, and we, without even realizing it, we have people check in on the first floor, but then they have to immediately go up to the third floor and then on the sixth floor, and then to exit they're on the seventh floor. And it's just always what we've done yeah. And until our employees said, why, that was miserable. Why do I have to be transported? And he said, so now we're going to do things differently. But sometimes it takes, right, a seismic shift like the pandemic mm. to really disrupt.
1: Yeah, I love that imagery of, you know, and i so we, when we used to do some of the um, the organisation development stuff here in the police, we were trained in something called systems thinking, and one of the philosophies in that in the, in that it's like agile, it's similar similar thing. Waste and efficiency in that, and then one of the principles was called get to the Gemba, which is like a, an African proverb, which is about go to where the work happens. And I don't, and I think that extends far beyond you know program and and um, uh, project management, and it goes throughout leadership. Because if you want to know how to serve people, get to where the work happens. And I think what you just articulated is such a great visual representation. Because if you want to serve things and make things better, adopt their perspective and you'll you'll see exactly what to do or how, how to be able to do it, right?
0: Walk a mile in my shoes. That's exactly right. Wait, so the get to the gumbo, do you mean gumbo like gumbo? Gemba. Gemba,
1: G-E-M-B-A, Gemba.
0: Gemba and Gemba refers to work. I don't get the work or,
1: yeah, I think get to the source.
0: Get to the source.
1: Yeah. yeah. Oh, so, so, so the message for leaders is get to where the work happens.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
1: Powerful, right?
0: Totally powerful. Yeah. And, and, and I love it that again, in and one of my clients is Qualcomm. And I was out there, the, the chief marketing officer of Qualcomm, his name is Don McGuire, and he was just voted by Forbes as one of the most influential CMOs out there. And I'll give you an example as to why. So he he was all about, I mean, Qualcomm is high, high tech, right? And their motto is actually connectivity. They're all about 5G and artificial intelligence. And so he hired me. He said, I want to do these big, um, big idea summits. He said, because so many of our people were hired during the pandemic, they've never met in person. And I I just, it is time to just innovate. Let's innovate, Michelle. I said, Great. So you're telling me these people haven't seen each other in person and you want to innovate. He said, Yeah. I said, Well, then you got to connect. He said, Whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, You got to go slow to go fast. He goes, But I want to go fast. I said, You got to go slow. So we had two and a half days with all of his leaders and it wasn't until really the final half day did i say okay now go big and innovate and disrupt we spent so much time getting to know their stories their significant life events taking personality tests mm. really building these teams that had not seen each other in two and a half years and some of them have never met in person and and i kept saying trust me trust me trust me
1: mm. and then patience
0: and then he let it go and they have disrupted everything it is so fascinating even just the he's like even the way we work yeah so now they have no meetings fridays no they don't have meetings on fridays just Mm. so that they can be productive and that was one of the things that that came out of it he's like i want you to reinvent everything because if not now coming out of a pandemic when
1: isn't that cool but you know here's here's the ironic thing is that as a human being we know that we get our best ideas in the shower when we're not doing the thing, when we're not actually trying so hard to force it. So intellectually, we understand that we might need to slow down because, you know, it, I guess even with the, with the, I guess not many leaders that have an awareness of kind of the inside of the mind, but when we're busy and we're rushing and we, we don't have that psychological safety, we don't have access to the front cortex, which is the, the, the reasoning, logic, problem-solving.
0: I need to do some research into that, Ryan. Yeah. You are so right. When we as humans don't feel psychologically safe, when we're not feeling like we can trust somebody, then our yeah. best mental acuity is not being used, right? Our no. front, that is fascinating.
1: Yeah, the um, the capillaries shrink, which means the blood flow doesn't go to the prefrontal cortex, meaning we become more stupid. <laughs>
0: Meaning we're we're still operating in fight or flight probably yes. because we don't feel comfortable. Yes, that is fascinating.
1: Yeah, so we have to as a as a so a great leader will make people feel safe and connect at a heart level because it is there's eight of all the connections between the heart and the mind eighty percent go from the heart to the mind. So if you can convince the heart that they are safe, they have all that they need, and that they, they are welcome and that they belong, the heart tells the mind it's good go do what you do best, which is to figure out and solve great problems.
0: Can we write our next book together? Let's do it. I mean, that's, I I did not know that stat. And this Mm. is all making sense with all the research I've done. So when I talk about that meeting at nine o'clock in Rome that I wouldn't miss, it's because Pete makes everybody feel comfortable and they will walk 10 miles, Mm. (laughs) right? Without shoes to do whatever Pete wants because of how he makes them feel.
1: Yeah. I listened to the work of um Gabo Mate. He wrote a he's 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 all about trauma and um he he wrote a book with Gordon Neufeld all about parenting. And in, in that book, he says that parenting as a technique, parenting as an intellectual technique does not work unless there is attachment, i.e that the child feels love and safety and attachment with the adult. I think the same is true of leadership. I think leadership as a strategy and as a tactic is less effective unless our people know that we care and that they're safe around us.
0: You are so right. One of the leaders who I saw get pushed out um, created cultures of fear. And even on Zooms, he would just put people down if they missed a number or got it wrong. Yeah. And and that is exactly right. They didn't feel his employees didn't feel safe. And, and when I conducted a focus group with them to kind of get the data of what was going on, they were experience, they were experiencing horrible health effects. Yeah. And horrible stress because they were, so they had this anxious attachment mm. to this leader. They needed the leader, but they never felt safe and they weren't performing at their highest. Yeah, This this is all fascinating. You're so right.
1: And, you know, and, and I guess that kind of links to John Maxwell's work where he says that the lowest form of leadership is following because I have to because of your status and your position. And I guess what we found out with the Great Resignation is that people have found another way. <laughs> I don't have to follow you anymore.
0: <laughs> I love John Maxwell. You are so right. Well, tell me again that stat, 80% of the heart, so, what goes to the brain?
1: So of all the neural pathways between our heart and our brain, 80% of communication goes from the heart to the mind. Nuts, is it?
0: So you're at your highest level of performance when you feel the safest and when you feel that there's connection. So safety and connection are correlated for sure. Yeah. Um, and, and when when we're deconstructing connection as well, we also have to recognize that it's not just it's it's not just asking the question, how are you doing really? Or tell me about a time when you've been uncomfortable yeah. or tell me about a mistake you made because I want you all to be innovative yeah, and for yeah. in to be innovative, you have to make a mistake. So it's, you know, all these questions can can really add to what you're trying to accomplish. But when you think about it, it's, it's not just asking the question, right? But it's truly, this is my definition of meaningful connection. It's truly making sure that your employees are feeling Mm-hmm. seen,
1: mm-hmm.
0: heard, valued and appreciated. Mm-hmm. And as a leader these na- these days you really at the end of the day if you want to do some self-reflection, that's all you really you have to ask. It, mm-hmm. It's not did I increase revenue by 30% today? what you're really going to be you're going to be able to do that if your employees feel seen heard, valued, and appreciated. So when I went back out to San Diego to do the last big Qualcomm Big Idea Summit, we ended up doing a fireside chat, Don and I did, up in stage. And he bought the books and everybody's talking. and, And one of the people asked a really good question. He said, Don, so you're telling us that as leaders to be successful right now, we need to make sure we're connecting with our people. But is there a metric that we have so that we know whether we're doing it and Don said, you're right. No, we've got an engagement survey, but mm. I don't know if that tells you. So that's on my to-do list, Ryan. I want to create a quick and easy metric, right? Quick and easy assessment that leaders can give to their people asking, do you feel seen, heard, valued, and appreciated so that I know that I'm connecting with you?
1: Mm. Yeah. And I guess the the clues in those uh, questions will be informed by what you said earlier, which is that. You know, for me to feel seen and heard, well, you have to know the whole of me, not the one that can make you money, not the one that could do the performance.
0: Exactly. It's show that you care about me as a person. So after this fireside chat that I'm referring to out in San Diego, um, you know, Don gets off the stage, I get off the stage and there's a line of people. And one of the women comes up to me and she's got tears in her eyes. And and this is her quote, she said, you spoke to my soul. Hmm. I said, Oh, my gosh, tell me what's going on. And she said, I just left a company. And I'm hmm. so grateful for being here at Qualcomm hmm. with leaders who care. She said, I was home alone in my apartment for two years during hmm. the pandemic. And my leader never asked me once how I was doing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's powerful. You know, it, it was better when I left, but in the early days of being at the police, the, the, the assumption was that work was work and home was home. And uh, that just never worked. You just, just it would never work because people are people wherever they go. Um, I started this podcast four years ago. Um, and there was a, so I've, I've been out for three years. So there was a year overlap where I was interviewing great people. So I would do it on a Sunday night. So everybody I worked with knew that I had a, an interview on the Sunday night. Guess what happened Monday morning? no one asked any questions in fact it was almost like the the thing that we didn't talk about it was just so and so so if i was asked do i feel seen and heard and and valued and appreciated no they on the surface of it they're like well there's nothing wrong i haven't we haven't led you poorly but it's the absence of you embracing the whole of me
0: that is exactly right. Say that again. It's the absence of you embracing the whole of me.
1: Yeah, yeah. That was it. You know, I was fortunate enough to um, be part of a conversation with Patrick Lincioni. He was um, he was on a podcast, and I got to ask a question. Um, and it was right at the very start of the pandemics. It was, there, it, was it was quite a novel thing at the time, and um, he just said, "Now's the time to be exceedingly human." you know, he's like, let's not blur out our backgrounds because if, you know, he, he's basically saying that there were his clients somewhat past, and he was like, oh, hey, what's your, what's your name sort of thing? It was just, just don't worry. Like be, everyone's going through an experience. Just be exceedingly human.
0: Yeah, I, I'm advocating for right now. Actually, we're, we're a little bit better now. Right when we were coming out of the pandemic, I was saying what's needed right now is extraordinary connection. Mm. kind of correlates with exceedingly human right we need extraordinary compassion and connection right now I feel like things are normalizing and we can kind of go back to just saying meaningful connection just give me some meaningful connection we don't really need extraordinary just meaningful connection I do think normalizing a little bit more how are things over there do you feel like things are getting back and it's more normal
1: yes in terms of the health side of things in terms of the um the government and their just dead disconnect between their values and their behaviors that they demonstrate whilst in office that's that's a big sore point uh as well as them the impending cost of living and and so there's there's, there's an undertone of still instability but it's more financial based than it is health-based is 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 my perception at least
0: you're absolutely right
1: yeah um I really like that one of your sections is about own your calendar, and so many people that I work with are, are very, very high degree of personal responsibility, um, they're really, really hardworking, um, but it also means that they play Tetris with their calendar, they almost see that every bit is a block to fill right, <laughs> how do you own your calendar
0: yeah so that was one of the most surprising chapters in my book ryan i didn't see it coming when i sat down with warner thomas who's the system ceo of a huge hospital system and i said tell me about how you think successful connection looks like at the organizational level he goes oh you got to own your calendar i said no no no. I'm, I'm asking about connection he goes how else do you connect with the key stakeholders in your organization You do it through your calendar Mm -hmm. i said okay so tell me more about that and so he kind of walked me through that process right that we now all know but i hadn't really heard it articulated out Mm -hmm. loud that first you have to identify the key stakeholders then you have to identify on a daily weekly monthly quarterly annually who do you need to meet with how often right? Is it one-on-one? Is it in a group setting? Is it weekly? Is it bi-weekly? Do you do a town hall quarterly? He's like, I need my people to have all of this. And he said, it drives me crazy when my high level leaders come to me and say, I don't have time because I'm in meetings all day. He said, but you, you have to own your calendar. That's on you. If you're meetings all day, then make them 30 minutes rather than one hour. Delegate to somebody else to go to the meeting rather than you. Do you, and and, and then he said, what also drives Mm -hmm. me crazy is when people say, I don't even have time to eat lunch. He said, it's up to you to block out that one hour for lunch because that's important to you. When people say, I don't have time to exercise, you embed that time every morning from seven until eight to exercise. So I've learned a lot from him. One of the other things that he says, whenever I I talk to him, I say, okay, I'm coaching one of your highest level leaders. Do you have any advice? He said, I'm paying that person to strategically think I'm paying that person for their brain power. Please make sure that they're embedding time in their calendars for Mm -hmm. strategic thinking. So I got off a call last evening with one of my highest level leaders. She's amazing. And she's at the beach right now on vacation. And the two weeks before her vacation were the vacation block at the company. So she didn't take vacation during those two weeks. But she said she sat, you know, told her team, I am not scheduling one meeting with you all. We're not having one-on-ones team, nothing because that's a vacation block. And even if you don't take a vacation, use it to think Mm. that's brilliant. Mm. We need that. We need time to think. And if we're just constantly reacting, looking at our calendar going, Oh my gosh, I have no time. That's on us. We can do a better job.
1: I love that. Thank you for sharing that insight. I, um, I have a concept here, always better than yesterday, is called heartprint. And heartprint for me represents the legacy of our heart-centered interactions. That all of a sudden, because of the way that we've had an impact on people, something has become possible. Something has forever infinitely changed. And I may never ever get to learn of it. It may be that you know I, I'm a coach too, and and I and I. And I love this understanding that my clients are not the beneficiaries of my coaching. The people who interact with my clients are the beneficiaries of my coaching, Um, which really fills my heart with a lot of purpose. And um, I just wonder what you kind of hope your heart print to be.
0: Oh, what a beautiful question. It made me smile. Just thinking about, um, I've, I've, you know, at big leadership events, I'll run into people who work under some of the leaders that I coach and they'll come up to me and say, thank you. Yeah. seeing such a difference.
1: Powerful. Thank
0: you. It is powerful. So yeah, that's what I try to do every single day is, is just help people find fulfillment in what they do and try to create this positive environment for others so others can thrive and that trickle effect the trickle down effect and cascading i want to you know make the world a better place i mean i really do i have a daughter who's about to go to college and um and and she said mom you're the most positive person i've ever met and i said thank you and it's it's real i'm not trying like i really wake up each day and just like i like let's together let's try to make this world a better place And if I can just continue to have effects on whether it's my daughter, hallelujah, right? And she can take some of that as she goes off to college or the people that I'm coaching. But that's really why I ended up writing this book, Ryan, is because my my sphere of influence at the time was pretty tiny. I was only influenced maybe 120 students, maybe 20 clients. And yet what I was seeing to me was so seismic, That I was like, I need to write this book and hope, hope that I can influence more people that they don't make the mistakes. Because if we don't now all embrace how important, true, meaningful connection is with each other to accomplish whatever our goals are Mm. personally or professionally, then we're missing the boat. And I don't want anybody to miss the boat.
1: Yeah. When you just shared with me that feedback your daughter gave you, I'll tell you what I visualized. I visualized her being critical saying that is a criticism (laughs) and you just like ted lasso still managed to keep it as a as a compliment thank you so much (laughs) sweetheart i love you too you're a backhanded compliment absolutely (laughs) Uh, made me smile look i've enjoyed i've really enjoyed this conversation i'll share all your good links in the show notes so that people can go get their own copy of the book i highly recommend it and i'll be honored if you'd leave us with a final thought from your good self
0: Oh, absolutely. If you could just show somebody today that you care. Um, When I asked Juan Martin, you know, how he's evaluated, he goes, well, our goal was 250 million acts of kindness this year. I said, how in the world do you figure that out? He said, research has shown that one act of kindness drives seven more. Hmm. So my hope for all of those who are listening today is just try one act of kindness and see how it cascades. Oh, I love that.
1: Thank you so much for your time.
0: Thank you, Ryan. You were just delightful. The next book we'll write. Thank you. Take care, everyone.
1: Hey, my friends. Thank you for making it to the end. I hope that our time spent together today has left you a little bit better than before you push play. I'd really appreciate if you just took a moment to leave a review to allow me to meet more people where they are and hopefully leave them a little bit better too. If you're curious to know how I, through Always Better Than Yesterday, can serve you, your team, your organisation, then head to alwaysbetterthanyesterday.com to connect. And while you're there, let me know one or two things that you're going to do as a result of listening to this conversation. I absolutely love hearing your thoughts, your reflections and the things that this spark in your own heart and mind. If you want more insights from my heart and mind, I do send out short episodes on a Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday. And again, I hope that they serve you well. I appreciate you listening. I'm Ryan Hartley, host of the Always Better Than Yesterday podcast, a podcast for heart-centered leaders just like you. Keep leading, my friends. Always love.